Section four of Celebrated Crimes, Volume six, Part three, Martin Guerre by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section four. Towards ten o'clock in the evening of a dark night, the door of a small house lying about half a gunshot from the village opened gently for the exit of a man wrapped in a large cloak, followed by a young woman who accompanied him some distance. Arrived at the parting point, they separated with a tender kiss and a few murmured words of adieu. The lover took his horse, which was fastened to a tree, mounted, and rode off towards rear. When the sounds died away, the woman turned slowly and sadly toward her home, but as she approached the door a man suddenly turned the corner of the house and barred her way. Terrified, she was on the point of crying for help when he seized her arm and ordered her to be silent. Rose he whispered. I know everything. That man is your lover. In order to receive him safely, you sent your old husband to sleep by means of a drug stolen from your father's shop. This intrigue has been going on for a month, twice a week, at seven o'clock. Your door is open to this man, who does not proceed on his way to the town until ten. I know your lover. He is my nephew." Petrified with terror, Rose fell on her knees and implored mercy. "'Yes,' replied Pierre. "'You may well be frightened. I have your secret. I have only to publish it, and you are ruined forever.' "'You will not do it,' entreated the guilty woman, clasping her hands. "'I have only to tell your husband,' continued Pierre, "'that his wife has dishonored him.' and to explain the reason of his unnaturally heavy sleep. He, he will kill me. No doubt. He is jealous. He is an Italian. He will know how to avenge himself, even as I do. But I never did you any harm, Rose cried in despair. Oh, have pity, have mercy, and spare me. On one condition... What is it? Come with me. Terrified almost out of her mind, Rose allowed him to lead her away. Bertrand had just finished her evening prayer and was preparing for bed when she was startled by several knocks at the door. Thinking that perhaps some neighbor was in need of help, she opened it immediately and, to her astonishment, beheld a disheveled woman whom Pierre grasped by the arm. He exclaimed vehemently, Here is thy judge! Now confess all to Bertrand. Bertrand did not at once recognize the woman who fell at her feet, overcome by Pierre's threats. Tell the truth here, he continued, or I go and tell it to your husband at your own home. Ah, madame, kill me, said the unhappy creature, hiding her face. Let me rather die by your hand than his. Bertrand, bewildered, did not understand the position in the least, but she recognized Rose. "'But what is the matter, madame? Why are you here at this hour, pale and weeping? Why has my uncle dragged you hither? I am to judge you, does he say? Of what crime are you guilty?' "'Martin might answer that if he were here,' remarked Pierre. A lightning flash of jealousy shot through Bertrand's soul at these words. All her former suspicions revived. 
What? she said. My husband? What do you mean? That he left this woman's house only a little while ago, that for a month they have been meeting secretly. You are betrayed. I have seen them, and she does not dare to deny it. Have mercy, cried Rose, still kneeling. The cry was a confession. Bertrand became pale as death. Oh, God, she murmured, deceived, betrayed, and by him. For a month past, repeated the old man. Oh, the wretch, she continued with increasing passion. Then his whole life is a lie. He has abused my credulity. He now abuses my love. He does not know me. He thinks he can trample on me, me, in whose power are his fortune, his honor, his very life itself. Then turning to Rose, And you, miserable woman, by what unworthy artifice did you gain his love? Was it by witchcraft, or some poisonous filter learned from your worthy father? Alas, no, madame, my weakness is my only crime. And also, my only excuse, I loved him long ago when I was only a young girl, and these memories have been my ruin. Memories? What? Did you also think you were loving the same man? Are you also his dupe? Or are you only pretending, and in order to find a rag of excuse to cover your wickedness? It was now Rose who failed to understand. Bertrand continued with growing excitement. Yes, it was not enough to usurp the rights of a husband and father. He thought to play his part still better by deceiving the mistress also. It is amusing, is it not? You also, Rose, you thought he was your old lover? Well, I at least am excusable. I, the wife, who only thought she was faithful to her husband. What does this all mean? asked the terrified Rose. It means that this man is an impostor, and that I will unmask him. Revenge! Revenge! Pierre came forward. Bertrand, he said, so long as I thought you were happy, when I feared to disturb your peace, I was silent. I repressed my just indignation, and I spared the usurper of the name and rights of my nephew, but do you now give me leave to speak? Yes, she replied in a hollow voice. You will not contradict me. By way of answer, she sat down by the table and wrote a few hasty lines with a trembling hand, then gave them to Pierre, whose eyes sparkled with joy. Yes, he said, vengeance for him, but for her pity. Let this humiliation be her only punishment. I promised silence in return for confession. Will you grant it? Bertrand assented with a contemptuous gesture. Go, fear not, said the old man, and Rose went out. Pierre also left the house. Left to herself, Bertrand felt utterly worn out by so much emotion. Indignation gave way to depression. She began to realize what she had done and the scandal which would fall on her own head. Just then her baby awoke and held out its arms, smiling and calling for its father. 
its father. Was he not a criminal? Yes, but was it for her to ruin him, to invoke the law, to send him to death after having taken him to her heart, to deliver him to infamy which would recoil on her own head and her child's, and on the infant which was yet unborn? If he had sinned before God, was it not for God to punish him? If against herself, ought she not rather to overwhelm him with contempt, but to invoke the help of strangers, to expiate this offense, to lay bare the troubles of her life, to unveil the sanctuary of the nuptial couch, in short, to summon the whole world to behold this fatal scandal? Was not that what, in her imprudent anger, she had really done? She repented bitterly of her haste. She sought to avert the consequences, and notwithstanding the night and the bad weather, she hurried at once to Pierre's dwelling, hoping at all costs to withdraw her denunciation. He was not there. He had at once taken a horse and started for Rieux. Her accusation was already on its way to the magistrates. At break of day, the house where Martin Guerre lodged when at Rieux was surrounded by soldiers. He came forward with confidence and inquired what was wanted. On hearing the accusation, he changed color slightly, but then collected himself and made no resistance. When he came before the judge, Bertrand's petition was read to him, declaring him to be an impostor, who falsely, audaciously, and treacherously had deceived her by taking the name and assuming the person of Martin Guerre, and demanding that he should be required to entreat pardon from God, the king, and herself. The prisoner listened calmly to the charge and met it courageously, only evincing profound surprise at such a step being taken by a wife who had lived with him for two years since his return, and who only now thought of disputing the rights he had so long enjoyed. As he was ignorant both of Bertrand's suspicions and their confirmation, and also of the jealousy which had inspired her accusation, his astonishment was perfectly natural, and did not at all appear to be assumed. He attributed the whole charge to the machinations of his uncle, Pierre Guerre, an old man, he said, who, being governed entirely by avarice and the desire of revenge, now disputed his name and rights, in order the better to deprive him of his property, which might be worth from sixteen to eighteen hundred livres. In order to attain his end, this wicked man had not hesitated to pervert his wife's mind, and at the risk of her own dishonor had instigated this calumnious charge, a horrible and unheard-of thing in the mouth of a lawful wife. "'Ah, I do not blame her.' he cried. She must suffer more than I do, if she really entertains doubts such as these. Uh, but I deplore her readiness to listen to these extraordinary calumnies originated by my enemy. The judge was a good deal impressed by so much assurance. The accused was relegated to prison whence he was brought two days later to encounter a formal examination. He began by explaining the cause of his long absence, originating, he said, in a domestic quarrel, as his wife well remembered. He varied his life during these eight years. At first he wandered over the country, wherever his curiosity and the love of travel led him. He then had crossed the frontier, revisited Biscay, where he was born, and having entered the service of the Cardinal of Burgos, he passed thence into the army of the King of Spain. He was wounded at the Battle of St. Quentin, conveyed to a neighboring village where he recovered, although threatened with amputation. Anxious to again behold his wife and child, his other relations, and the land of his adoption, he returned to Artigue, where he was immediately recognized by everyone, including the identical Pierre Guerre, his uncle, who now had the cruelty to disavow him. 
In fact, the latter had shown him special affection up to the day when Martin required an account of his stewardship. Had he only had the cowardice to sacrifice his money and thereby defraud his children, he would not today be charged as an impostor. But, continued Martin, I resisted, and a violent quarrel ensued, in which anger perhaps carried me too far. Pierre Guerre, cunning and revengeful, has waited in silence. He has taken his time and his measures to organize this plot, hoping thereby to obtain his ends, to bring justice to the help of his avarice, and to acquire the spoils he coveted, and revenge for his defeat, by means of a sentence obtained from the scruples of the judges. Besides these explanations, which did not appear wanting in probability, Martin vehemently protested his innocence, demanding that his wife should be confronted with him, and declaring that in his presence she would not sustain the charge of personation brought against him, and that her mind, not being animated by the blind hatred which dominated his persecutor, the truth would undoubtedly prevail. He now, in his turn, demanded that the judge should acknowledge his innocence, and to prove it by condemning his calumniators to the punishment invoked against himself, that his wife, Bertrand de Rolles, should be secluded in some house where her mind could no longer be perverted, and finally, that his innocence should be declared and expenses and compensations awarded him. After this speech, delivered with warmth and with every token of sincerity, he answered without difficulty all the interrogations of the judge. The following are some of the questions and answers just as they have come down to us. In what part of Biscay were you born? In the village of Aims, province of Guispoqua. What were the names of your parents? Antonio Guerre and Marie Torrieda. Are they still living? My father died June 15th, 1530. My mother survived him three years and twelve days. Have you any brothers and sisters? I had one brother who only lived three months. My four sisters, Inez, Dorothea, Marietta, and Pedrina, all came to live at Artigue when I did. They are there still, and they all recognize me. What is the date of your marriage? January 10th, 1539. Who were present at the ceremony? My father-in-law, my mother-in-law, my uncle, my two sisters, Maitre Marcel and his daughter Rose, a neighbor called Claude Parin, who got drunk at the wedding feast. Also, Gerard, the poet, who composed the verses in our honor. Who was the priest who married you? The old curé, Pascal Guerin, whom I did not find alive when I returned. What special circumstances occurred on the wedding day? At midnight exactly, our neighbor, Catherine Burr, bought us some repast which is known as Midianush. This woman has recognized me, as also our old Marguerite, who has remained with us ever since the wedding. What is the date of your son's birth? February 10th, 1548, nine years after our marriage. I was only twelve when the ceremony took place, and did not arrive at manhood till several years later. Give the date of your leaving Artigue. It was in August, 1549. As I left the village, I met Claude Perrin and the curé Pascal, and took leave of them. I went towards Beauvais, 
and I passed through Orleans, Bourges, Limoges, Bordeaux, and Toulouse. If you want the names of people whom I saw and to whom I spoke, you can have them. But what more can I say? Never indeed was there a more apparently veracious statement. All the doings in Martin Guerre seemed to be most faithfully described, and surely only himself could thus narrate his own actions. As the historian remarks, alluding to the story of Amphitryon, Mercury himself could not better reproduce all Sosia's actions, gestures, and words than did the false Martin Guerre those of the real one. In accordance with the demand of the accused, Bertrand de Rose was detained in seclusion, in order to remove her from the influence of Pierre Guerre. The latter, however, did not waste time, and during the month spent in examining the witnesses cited by Martin, his diligent enemy, guided by some vague traces, departed on a journey, from which he did not return alone. All the witnesses bore out the statement of the accused. The latter heard this in prison, and rejoiced, hoping for a speedy release. Before long he was again brought before the judge, who told him that his deposition had been confirmed by all the witnesses examined. "'Do you know of no others?' continued the magistrate. "'Have you no relatives except those you have mentioned?' "'I have no others,' answered the prisoner. "'Then uh, what do you say to this man?' said the judge, opening a door. An old man issued forth who fell on the prisoner's neck, exclaiming, "'My nephew!' Martin trembled in every limb, but only for a moment— Promptly recovering himself and gazing calmly at the newcomer, he asked coolly, "'And who may you be?' "'What?' said the old man. "'Do you not know me? Dare you deny me? Me, your mother's brother, Carbon Barreau, the old soldier? Me, who dandled you on my knee in your infancy? Me, who taught you later to carry a musket? Me?' who met you during the war at an inn in Picardy, when you fled secretly. Since then I have sought you everywhere. I have spoken of you and described your face and person, until a worthy inhabitant of this country offered to bring me thither, where indeed I did not expect to find my sister's son, imprisoned and fettered as a malefactor. What is his crime? May it please your honor? You shall hear replied the magistrate. Then you identify the prisoner as your nephew. You affirm his name to be... Arnold Dutille, also called Pancet, after his father, Jacques Pansa. His mother was Therese Barreau, my sister, and he was born in the village of Sagias. What have you to say? demanded the judge, turning to the accused. Three things, replied the latter unabashed. This man is either mad, or he has been suborned to tell lies, or he is simply mistaken. The old man was struck dumb with astonishment, but his supposed nephew's start of terror had not been lost upon the judge. Also much impressed by the straightforward frankness of Carbon Barreau, he caused fresh investigations to be made, and other inhabitants of Sagius were summoned to Rieu, who one and all agreed in identifying the accused as the same Arnal Dutil, who had been born and had grown up under their very eyes. Several deposed that, as he grew up, he had taken to evil courses, and become an adept in theft and lying, not fearing even to take the sacred name of God in vain, 
in order to cover the untruth of his daring assertions. From such testimony the judge naturally concluded that Arnauld Dutille was quite capable of carrying on an imposture, and that the impudence which he displayed was natural to his character. Moreover, he noted that the prisoner, who averred that he was born in Biscay, knew only a few words of the Basque language, and used these quite wrongly. He heard later another witness who deposed that the original Martin Guerre was a good wrestler and skilled in the art of fence, whereas the prisoner, having wished to try what he could do, showed no skill whatever. Finally, a shoemaker was interrogated, and his evidence was not the least damning. Martin Guerre, he declared, required twelve holes to lace his boots, and his surprise had been great when he found those of the prisoner had only nine. Considering all these points and the cumulative evidence, the judge of Rieux set aside the favorable testimony, which he concluded had been the outcome of general credulity, imposed on by an extraordinary resemblance. He gave due weight also to Bertrand's accusation, although she had never confirmed it, and now maintained an obstinate silence, and he pronounced a judgment by which Arnaud de Thiel was declared attained and convicted of imposture, and was therefore condemned to be beheaded, after which his body should be divided into four quarters and exposed at the four corners of the town. This sentence, as soon as it was known, caused much diversity of opinion in the town. The prisoner's enemies praised the wisdom of the judge, and those less prejudiced condemned his decision, as such conflicting testimony left room for doubt. Besides, it was thought that the possession of property and the future of the children required much consideration, also that the most absolute certainty was demanded before annulling a past of two whole years, untroubled by any counterclaim whatever. End of section four, recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.